Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We got a deal. Maybe. We're getting all the details as they trickle out. There aren't that many of them. We're talking about the U.S. and China. The focus now is on all of the iterations of phase one, how it's going to be rolled out. And people talk about the persisting uncertainty. However, there is some detail that has become more concrete, at least for Dan Ives. He's Managing Director uh, for Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Joining us here, uh, nice to say, Great in to our interactive here. broker studios. Thank you for being here. You are saying that you do think that the trade deal removes a dark cloud over tech stocks. Can you explain why? All that mattered for tech investors was the December 15, 15% tariff. If that happened, that would have been a gut punch, not just for Apple, semis, and really across the whole supply chain. Could have taken off about 200 bips of growth. Once that tariff got removed, and no December 15th, that would have been the issue. Right now, green light for tech stocks. I could tell you from an investor perspective, I think we have five to 7% rally into year end because now, despite all the noise, that was the remaining risk for names like Apple and semis to go higher. All right, so you mentioned Apple. That's kind of been held out as the poster child for the way to play or go long, go short, depending upon your view of how this trade will play out. How do you think Apple's gonna you know, behave or, you know, thrive in, in a world where maybe trade tensions are a little bit lower. Yeah, I mean, that was, a, in our opinion, a $20 overhang on Apple stock. I think now that's a stock that's going to have a three in front of it, either by year end or into early next year. But it speaks to why Cook was such a tactician, a pseudo ambassador between U.S. and China and why he's broken so much bread with Trump. Because it came down to, for Apple, they bet the farm on China. I think right now they're in a sort of Goldilocks scenario. I don't think they take anything out of China. This was sort of the worry for them. You'll see some U.S. manufacturing like Austin and others. But right now for Apple, it's an early Christmas present. I'm try I, I'm just struggling to understand uh, beyond just the December 15th tariffs uh, being lifted or, or the prospect of them uh, being removed from the table. Is there anything else that we know concrete? Uh, concretely out of this deal? No, I mean, right now in terms of IP protection, any sort of 5G specifics that many tech CEOs are focused on, nothing in terms of those specifics. But that's why going back to Friday, you know, there was a lot of noise. What is it? We don't know the specifics of the trade deal. From an investor perspective, in terms of tech, all focused on if it was going to happen or if not, it didn't. Right now, that's why we'll see a 5-7% rally in tech. Apple shares right now at about $280 per share, up 1.8% uh, today, following a 1.4% gain on Friday. Why aren't the gains bigger if what you're saying is the case? It's just like what happened a few months ago. It took time. That If you go back before earnings, stocks 215, 220, and we're trying to pound the tables. We came away from China. It was clear iPhone 11's much better than expected. It took time for that to show up in the stock. I think this is the same thing. That's why I go into next year. This is a stock, I think it starts at 300. You could now see 350, potentially 400 into what I believe is a 5G super cycle. So I think for Apple right now, it's not going to happen overnight, but that's why that's a stock. It continues to be our favorite tech name into next year. You mentioned 5G, and that's one of the areas that we hear probably most often when people talk about a bullish call for tech throughout the tech stack. How, does, how are you suggesting investors play 
5G other than the handset, i.e. Apple. Yeah, I think there's, so there's three ways to play it. There's Apple, and then I think on the semi side, you look at Qualcomm, in, in terms of my opinion, probably the best way to play 5G, as, as well as Intel, in terms of where they're positioned. And then even on cybersecurity, there's going to be a security piece around 5G. That's a name like Fordnet, FTNT, which plays it. So early days today, but I think as we go into the next six, 12 months, that's going to be a bigger focus into what I believe 5G transformational technology over the next decade. I remember, I'm old enough to remember six months ago when <laughs> we were talking about suppliers to Apple getting really whipped around on the heels of tariff news. I'm wondering which you expect to do the best with the removal of the prospects of the December 15th tariffs. Yeah, I mean, we just came away from China, you know, over the last few weeks in terms of our checks there on the ground. And I think from a supplier perspective, it, it's really playing the chip names. You know, I think names that are going to be most beneficial are Qualcomm, Intel and Semis. There's some smaller suppliers that are going to benefit in terms of Apple. But I think right here, it's really playing the chip plays for Apple as well as some of the distributors. Is there any chance that 5G's not going to live up to its hype? I'd say it's the same view of Lamar Jackson not living up to his hype. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see it possible just because it's right now it's one of the most transformational trends and you're seeing whether it's on the handset side on Verizon, AT&T and others, and it's really gonna affect enterprise. So I can tell you in terms of 5G, I think it's really gonna be a seminal moment, similar as cloud in terms of how we view tech. Dan Ives, thanks so much for joining us. Dan Ives, the equity analyst at Wedbush Security. Joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us the update on tech, he's bullish. I like his calls into the end of the year. I like his calls on Apple bullish and on 5G. We're hearing a lot of 5G as it relates to tech. The analysis of the UK election continues, the one that led Boris Johnson to victory. Also notable, though, was the incredible majority and the number of seats that the Conservative Party won. Joining us now, Marianne Harkin, former European U Union Parliament member representing Ireland, uh, and she uh, joins us by phone. Marianne, I want to start there. Is there a broader takeaway from the UK election, uh, given the fact that some of the most uh, liberal neighborhoods that always went uh, for for that party voted conservative? Well, I think it's a generalization to say it, Lisa, but, you know, a lot of people dislike Johnson, but they couldn't tolerate Corbyn. And if you look at what happened to the collapse of the Labour vote in the north of England, in particular, the Midlands, what they call the Red Wall. I mean, that vote just collapsed. And one after another, Labour supporters were saying they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for Corbyn. I think that was one part of it. I think the other part was the simple message, get Brexit done. Three words. It resonated with people. After three years, people want to see progress of some kind. And I think put those two things together, and, and that really, for me, um, gives you the, the, the bare bones, if you like, of, of what happened in this election. So, Marianne, now that it appears that the Brexit deal will go through, um, give us a sense. One of the stumbling, big stumbling blocks was Ireland, Northern Ireland, the, the, um, you know, the boundaries. Where is yes. that? How is that going to play out, do you think? 
Well, the agreement that was reached between Boris Johnson and our own Prime Minister, Varadkar, the withdrawal agreement, um, has three main items. Citizens' rights, the divorce settlement, but the real one was the Irish border. And what was agreed, they got rid of what was called the backstop, which was an insurance policy uh, in case there was divergence uh, in standards between the Republic and Northern Ireland. But what they have in place now is a guarantee from the UK that there will be no checks at the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, but there will be some checks in the Irish Sea between goods travelling from the UK to Northern Ireland. So in many ways, this is a perfect scenario for Northern Ireland because uh, they have access to the UK market and they have access to the EU market. But because, obviously, the UK wouldn't have the same access, that's why there have to be checks in the Irish Sea. And you'd be well aware that the DUP, which is the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, were fiercely opposed to this. Boris Johnson promised them it wouldn't happen, but subsequently he agreed to that. They still remain fiercely opposed, but that's where we are now. And if the deal is signed by the 31st of January 2020, we move on from there. Let's talk about moving on from there, Marion. Uh, you know, given your experience with the European Union and as a member of the Parliament, can you give us a sense of their approach in dealing with Boris Johnson, given the fact that not only did he win, uh, but that he has such a big conservative majority behind him? Well, actually, it matters that he has such a big majority because that means he does not need to be looking over his shoulder. There's a small group in the Tories called the ERG, the European Reform Group, who are all in favour of a hard Brexit. Um, They are smallish in number. Uh, They will not bother him the way they used to. Nigel Farage didn't have any uh, MPs elected. To be fair, he did stand back in most constituencies, or his his party did. So Boris now is is in charge, basically. Uh, He's a man at the helm. And uh, that makes a big difference when it comes to negotiating. And the, the sense, I think, in many European capitals was um, the fact that he won the election and won it well was a positive rather than a negative, because it means he's in charge and he can now negotiate and move forward. Because just like the UK, the truth is, many European citizens as well, while many of them had wished uh, Brexit wouldn't happen, uh, now that it's going to happen, they want to get on with looking at the trade deal talks and, and seeing what kind of a future relationship we can manage. So, Marion, one of the items uh, or arguments that the Brexiteers made is, as in, uh, you know, outside of the union, uh, the UK can make uh, bilateral deals with the US and the EU. What is the expectation that of what they can get done with the US? Because we're seeing here with the US and China, it's no easy, you know, task negotiating with the US at this point. 
Well, you know, there's a couple of things here. First of all, Charles Michel, who is the president of the European Council, he's the former prime minister of Belgium, said immediately after the election results that um, he's looking forward to uh, opening negotiations on the trade deal. But he talked about a level playing pitch. And what he means is he's talking about environmental standards, social legislation, workers' rights, state aid rules, etc. And that's where we start from. It's an unusual trade agreement. We're starting from complete regulatory alignment and seeing where we go from there. It's it's always the other way around in any trade deal. So the question then becomes if the UK and when not if, when the UK negotiates trade deals with other countries um, what kind of standards, uh, regulatory alignment will be involved. And it's the divergence from those standards that are in the EU. That's what will cause the problems if there are problems. So it's it's hugely complicated. And I think what most people want, and, and hopefully Boris Johnson will follow this line as well, is that there be some kind of prioritising sequencing to deal with some of the the most important issues first, that we can put some sort of a framework in place because there are so many issues. I mean, fishing rights, for example, that is fraught with difficulty, absolutely fraught. So we need to put some sort of framework in place and work from there. 12 months is too short, but we have to do the best we can within that period of time. Marion Harkin, thanks so much for joining us. Marion's a former member of the European Parliament and of the Irish Parliament as well, giving us her thoughts on uh, the uh, election uh, win by Boris Johnson, what it means for the Brexit process. We now go on to actually getting this uh, deal done for the folks uh, in the UK. They will be moving forward on that. We've got a bunch of manufacturing data around the world coming out this morning. Uh, Europe disappointed. In the U.S., manufacturing also slightly underwhelmed, but interestingly, services PMI came in a little bit ahead of expectations. Joining us now, Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist at Stiefel Financial, joining us uh, on the phone from Chicago. Lindsay, before we get into uh, sort of the nitty gritty, how important is it to watch the data that we're getting uh, over the next few few weeks. Is this so messy and so noisy uh, that it's hard to count? Or is this is this significant data? Well, data is always messy and difficult to count. But I do think it paints a very important picture of what we're experiencing here at the U.S. as well as overseas as we head into the end of the year. And it sets the tone for what we can expect then looking out to the new year of 2020. All right. So, Lindsay, it looks like just first, I guess, on trade, we looks like we have a phase one deal. Of course, we've seen nothing on paper yet, which is kind of a par for the course, it seems. But assuming that what's been reported is actually in a phase one deal, does that change or impact your 2020 outlook in any way? Well, it's difficult to say, because like you said, we haven't seen anything put to paper as of yet. And we've obviously seen the ebb and flow of trade negotiations before. 
And while a phase one deal has been agreed to in principle, those principles have not yet been signed into text, and we won't see that for at least another month. So there still is plenty of time for further disruptions and further tweaks to negotiations to occur between now and then. There's also a question of enforceability. Aside from adhering to a specific level of purchases, China did say that it would, quote, crack down on intellectual property theft, uh, forced technology transfers, etc. Some of the key issues that the Trump administration has been focused on for the past 12 to 18 months. But there's few specifics that have really been hammered out. So there is some skepticism regarding the country's willingness to actually follow through when it comes to these latter issues or, or really how the U.S. can even enforce such efforts. Because we have heard from China many times before saying they would address these issues. So I don't know if I'm necessarily convinced that this time really will be different. So given that we do have a trade truce of sorts, but one that uh, keeps a lot of the uncertainty for the C-suite, and given the fact that we're getting a bunch of economic data that shows ongoing strength in the U.S. economy, albeit uh, an ongoing concern about manufacturing, how are we setting up heading into 2020? Well, I think that 2020 is going to bring a lot of continued uncertainty and volatility. I do think the market right now is looking at the positive. They're looking at the economy through a glass half full lens. They're focused on trade negotiations, taking a step in the right direction. But I do think that the market is really disregarding a lot of the red flags that we're still seeing in fundamentals. We're still seeing business investment trend negative. We're still seeing manufacturing deep into contractionary territory. We're now beginning to see signs of unevenness in part of the consumer, which has been, and we need, we need the consumer to continue to be the, uh, the primary support to growth going forward. So even if we do see this phase one trade deal signed into uh, certainty, within a month's time, there still is a lot of pain that the U.S. economy has experienced that will take time to unwind going into 2020. So given that backdrop, Lindsay, do you expect the Fed to maybe cut rates once in 2020 or prefer to stay on the sidelines, assuming the data can support that? Well, I think both. I think the Fed does prefer to move to the sideline and stay there indefinitely. But the Fed has also set the bar relatively high. The Fed has essentially committed the U.S. economy to a perpetual 2% growth rate and a return to 2% inflation in the near to medium term. So if the U.S. economy fails to meet the Fed's set expectations, I do think the committee has painted themselves into a corner where they will have to act. And because the trajectory of the data suggests we will not meet the Fed's optimistic expectations, I do see the committee cutting once, twice, if not three times next year. Lindsay, in in a recent research piece, you seem to agree with uh, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari that the civilian unemployment rate is basically meaningless. How do you interpret what we're seeing in the labor market in terms of how strong or not strong uh, the U.S. employment market is? Well, I will say those are his words, um, but I do echo his sentiment that the civilian unemployment rate does a disservice to the average American looking at those numbers as it doesn't tell the whole story. The civilian unemployment rate fails to capture all of the millions of Americans that have been sidelined, pushed out of the labor market, that are no longer actively participating. And what I mean by that is in order to be included in the unemployment rate, you have to be actively seeking a job. 
So if you're not looking, if you're taking a break from, from seeking gainful employment, even if you're not employed, you're not technically counted as unemployed. So it really does a, a, a poor job of giving us a true sense of the jobless level in the United States. Again, with those millions of Americans sitting on the sideline, not actively participating in the labor market. Hey, Lindsay, just real quickly, do you have a recession, U.S. recession in your model, in your forecast? I don't have a, a technical recession priced into the model. My bigger concern is a longer-run, non-accelerating economic scenario where the U.S. economy falls to a top-line GDP rate of less than 1% for an extended period of time. To me, that's the scarier forecast than an outright recession. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago, giving us her, her thoughts on the economic outlook uh, Generally, the economy remains a quite strong, slower growth, certainly relative to the prior two years, but most forecasters looking for a 2%-ish type of growth in 2020, uh, led by the consumer. Uh, we are maybe seeing some stabilization in the manufacturing and business investment, but still the weaker of the two, the consumer continues to drive the U.S. economy. PG&E, that has been a huge question for a lot of people as they look to the biggest utility in California and wonder what is the future uh, facing bankruptcy, facing a bankruptcy restructuring. Luckily, Kit Connellich has been uh, monitoring all of the iterations of this dragged out deal. Kit Connellich is Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, just to sort of give a sense of the latest, PG&E shares are sinking to today after California rejected their restructuring proposal. Kit, bring us up to speed. Why did California reject this? Um, I, you know, it, it's such a uh, detailed letter that the governor sent to PG&E that there's, there's a lot of reasons. Let's put it that way. It sounds like the governor wants uh, kind of new corporate governance. Uh, he wants uh, stronger, sounds like much stronger uh, financial structure to the company. Uh, he wants guarantees that if things go wrong, the state can take it over. I think there's a lot of things there that it's hard to say how they would be structured and so where we go from here. So he's put out a lot of, of markers and targets, but exactly how it gets resolved in a way that the company can run in the future is is very puzzling to me. So, Kit, you've color, covered the utility, utility industry for many, many years. Give us a sense of you know, how long can a utility continue to operate under bankruptcy? Like, can they just kind of do this in perpetuity as long as I'm still paying my bill and the other folks in California are paying their bill? Boy, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I think clearly uh, nobody has an interest in a utility just going belly up and, you know, not running. Somebody's got to run the operation. And I think when push comes to shove, the governor knows that, PG&E knows that, the financial people know that, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's not going to go on forever, but I think there's uh, a lot of game playing that can go on here. And the governor wants to establish how tough he is on the utility. The utility doesn't want to give away the store so that the shareholders have, have nothing left. And then you have the bondholder position, which would basically wipe out 
the equity in the utility and they'd take it over. Uh, but whether the governor wants out of state uh, hedge funds running the utility is also a question. So, you know, it's a question of what's the least bad outcome maybe here. Kit, uh, just to sort of uh, paint the picture here, we see P- PG&E shares down today, more than 13%. Obviously, it's been a terrible year for PG&E, and this stems from the wildfires and the liability that potentially will stem from that. So that's the uh, sort of uh, company side of things. There's also the investor side of things, and this has been one of the top vet bets for distressed debt investors. A lot of different players getting involved here. Can you give us a sense of who they are? and how much money is at stake here? Well, the um, you know total enterprise value of the company is, uh, of course, goes up and down with the stock market every day, but uh, uh, in the range of $50 billion, something like that. So there are uh, some very big bets by players like uh, Elliott, uh, for example, and uh, on, on the equity side, there's uh, uh, Abrams and... Uh, PIMCO is involved on the debt side. So uh, it's a big position where if you have a, a, a strong ability to analyze this situation, you can make a lot of money or potentially lose a lot of money. And we don't know exactly where everybody's position is because obviously you can be long or short or hedge along the way. So, Kid, one of the big issues that that I learned about when this story first broke is this whole concept that, you know, there's these utilities in in California with the wildfires, there's really nothing to protect them. I mean, so these fires keep coming every year and these guys are on the hook. And it seems like, you know, and and a lot of it's just act of God kind of stuff, but is there a scenario during this restructuring where maybe from a legal perspective, they get a little bit of protection that if a lightning strikes and, or even if one of our equipment's puts a spark out there and burns down that we're not, you can't put us out of business every single year. We keep coming back to this place. Well, ideally from the utilities viewpoint, they would like an end to this inverse condemnation. That's rule, the term I was looking legal, for. Thank you. you know, the legal rule where, which says basically if their equipment can be connected in any way with a fire and it doesn't have to be proved that they did anything wrong, quote unquote, uh, but just it was there when the fire started kind of thing. So it's easy for the lawyers to prove that they were somehow part of the the problem, then everything is is their financial burden. And so obviously in a state the size of California, that can be a very big number very quickly. Um, That's a killer. Uh, It's partly mitigated now by the fact that the state has put out a uh, future rule where beginning middle of next year, uh, $21 billion, some from the utility, some from the state, will be in a fund uh, that will go to the utilities if there is a big fire. So, you know, the state's trying to set up, and, and I think the market has gotten a little bit comfortable with that setup of uh, there's at least some protection so that they, you know, it's not one year, everything is wiped out, you're back in bankruptcy. Has it ever been more exciting to cover utilities? Uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> well, cover one utility anyway, or, or the California utilities. Well, so. I guess that there's also, there was a lot of talk initially about having some sort of state-operated utility that seems to not be on the table anymore. No one wants to actually take responsibility. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the cooler heads uh, might realize that having local governments run a gigantic utility like this, it's not impossible. It's done. Los Angeles has a local 
utility. Sacramento has a local utility. Whether San Jose would have a local utility in San Francisco, uh, it would it would be a huge issue. There are still people who own these wires and power plants that would have to be paid off. And so it, the complexity gets, you know, to levels of magnitude if, if you also have somebody buying the assets while you have a bankruptcy to work out. Any sense of timing how this we get a conclusion to this? Um, everybody wants to see it done by next June, because that's when that wildfire fund I was talking about kicks in. So the governor clearly, I think, would would like to see that happen. You know, on the one hand, he wants to be tough on these guys and get the right deal from his point of view. On the other hand, uh, he doesn't want it to drag on forever. That would be a, a an ugly situation for him politically, too. So I think there's some urgency on the part of all parties now that doesn't mean that you know any one step that somebody takes might not push right. it out further and you know it's an unintended consequence right thanks so much kit kit Connolidge, he's a senior industrials and utilities analyst a rocking job these days to be utilities analyst lots of fun out there. i mean on every <laughs> level though i mean yes it's pg e but it's also this has been the hot spot yep. because bond yields have been going down. So Crazy. utilities have been on fire. So much excitement. So Kate Connolly, Bloomberg Intelligence, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. We looked at uh, Pacific Gas and Electric because they try to resolve the crisis there. They're in bankruptcy, trying to forge a deal to get out of uh, bankruptcy, but it is now a political process. The governor of California, Governor Newsom, has to sign off on the deal, and they're in the midst of negotiations. We will continue to cover that story. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.